0: NFS office in London for episode 97 of Blockchain Insider, the weekly show dedicated to the news of where blockchain and cryptography meet the changing worlds of finance, tech and, of course, consumer products. Today we bring you Microsoft makes decentralized identity a thing you can use, Facebook keeps warming up to crypto, and, oh yeah, Bitcoin is mooning. All this and more on today's Blockchain Insider. I'm your host, Simon Taylor, back in the hot seat. And, uh, well, Colin, you've done an excellent set of hosting duties recently whilst I've been out. Uh, I was out in the Middle East for a little bit, and we had some great guests. Uh, Joining me from your field in France, how are you, sir?
1: I am doing very well. Very fieldy and sunny which is a nice change.
0: So you're not in New York for blockchain week. You're near a field. I hear that's where all the cool kids want to be these days.
1: Well, it is, but apparently the gods are not shining down upon them and are filled the, the air with storm clouds and rain and it's coming down. And I think they're calling Noah. But all it all brings rising tides, which obviously is hitting XRP prices.
0: And every other coin, it seems. But we'll get on to price action uh, (laughs) later on. So stay tuned for that one, everybody. Um, But first up, we have a story from Finextra. And Nordea have launched their blockchain-based trading platform for small and medium enterprises. uh, Built on the We.Trade platform, developed by 12 banks using IBM blockchain technology. Nordea says that building an ecosystem from the buyer and the seller, um, the bank itself takes on a new role... It interacts with customers as early on in the order, not just the end of the payment, so they're getting more valuable to the client. The head of business banking at Nordea said, we want to see more and more small, medium-sized companies getting involved in cross-border trading. There are some common challenges they face, not least tariffs lately. Um, uh, He didn't say that. That That's me editorializing. The biggest problem that small businesses face is related to trust in overseas trading partners. Weed up trade is not only about providing trade finance, in other words, money um, and lending it's something bigger than that it's about enabling trade um, and creating an ecosystem for global trade so it's just like Glorified supplier database for small businesses. It's really easy to buy off a big company in another part of the world, but when you're buying off a small company in another part of the world as a small business, do you know if they're going to send you the goods if you give them money, or vice versa? If you if you mail out the goods that you've produced, are they going to ever give you any money? So um, I, I think it solves a problem. Uh, real world product, which is interesting. Um, I like that they've got a proposition live in the market. Um, and, uh, you know, we, our good friends at Nordea have, have talked a couple of times about where they see blockchain and DLT playing in this. Um, Colin, what, what's your reaction to this?
1: Well, I, I think it's an interesting thing. And it's been running for a while now. Like I, I was looking, looking up the story before the show um, and, and I went in to type in the press release and I found one from like literally a year ago that says this thing's been alive for a year and a half. So I guess this is the next stage of development, which is fantastic. Um, it it uh, is cool on, on the fact that they are looking at this as how can we actually advance um, our strategy and get more involved in these processes rather than just say, how can we uh, blockchainify an existing solution? Um, so I'm I'm quite positive on it for that. I also love the fact that they didn't say, hey, let's jam this into a token platform. Um, so I love that. Um, but I'm also a, a bit more skeptical on some of the things where it, it fits in with supply chains and needs to fit into real world systems. That said, Um, banks are basically doing trade finance to do that existing process right now. So if you're saying, let's just remove some of these headaches, uh, look upstream a bit, I can see the the argument for that incremental improvement. And I think that that's where they're trying to go. Obviously, uh, quite smart people working in that business over in trade finance at Nordea. Um, So definitely a big shout out to you guys. Um, This is very positive to see. um, And hopefully it will lead to other things plugging into it, because I know there's a lot of trade finance related things happening in the background and just starting to come live Uh, now and in the the very near future.
0: It's an interesting time, isn't it? Um, There's definitely value to be had here. Um, I guess... uh Interesting that we've constantly had the question um, that seems to have died away now, which is when is this DLT stuff going to be real for banks? Here's a live platform that's been live for a while. Uh, We're sort of quietly, slowly seeing the rise of enterprise DLT. Uh, Like People had written this off 12 months ago, but it's still there and it's standing the test of time. I mean, that in itself is pretty interesting.
1: Mm, Absolutely.
0: Alrighty, uh, next story this week uh, comes from Coindesk.com and the SEC's crypto czar, whoever that is, says exchanges that list EOs, is that IEOs?
1: IEOs, yes.
0: Yeah, a may face legal uh, question mark. Um, so it's certain exchanges that facilitate initial exchange offerings may be breaking US securities laws, a uh, top securities exchange commission official has said. Um, so it's uh, Valerie Shepaznik, um the SEC senior advisor for digital assets and innovation said uh, if they're not registered, uh, they will find themselves in trouble in the US if they have an issuer uh, or US buyers, if they are operating in the US market. So it seems like the IEO and the the ICO um, have exactly the same challenge here. You still can't get around the
1: U.S. securities laws. Colin, what's going on here? Well, uh, did the notion of an IEO is something that kind of appeared, and I think Binance was the first one to do it last year. Um, but it was something that... Uh, Definitely came up in the last week or so, um, and we'll talk about it a bit more, as uh, Bitfinex has raised money through what they call an IEO. So, essentially, think of ICO, where there's some kind of smart contract or or a computer program floating around, and you send cryptocurrency to it, and then it sends you a token back. This is saying, hey, let's get rid of all those headaches of having to use a blockchain to send money, and let's just say, like, we're going to start selling these things on our centralized platform, um, and you throw money at us on our centralized platform, which is... Um, logical, um, and hence exactly why exchanges have been doing that in an IPO process for, uh, what, 50, 60, 100 years now, more than 100 years. Um, so going all the way what back to, um, to uh, what's it called, the uh, Dutch East Indies Company or something like that. Um, so hundreds of years. Uh basically, there are lots of rules around that. you got to be a broker-dealer. you got to be registered as an ATS if you're going to trade these things, um, or you've got to be an exchange. So um, they are saying, well, let's do all that fun stuff that needs to be regulated, but without any of the regulations. Um, and and she's come out and very rightly said, hey, a lot of this may fall into that bucket, and you may not have been registered to do it. And if there are any U.S. buyers in here, let's, let's remember, um, the U.S., uh arm goes well beyond its own borders um u.s citizens or u.s persons can be a host of people that you wouldn't necessarily expect um speaking as one (laughs) um and i think that there's there's gonna be a lot of complications and this could be one of those things where finally finally the regulators start saying hey let's let's move forward with a bit more um swift action than what we've seen in the past and that's really what she's hinting at so um Good if you're trying to do things the right way to use new tools, new platforms. Um, Bad if you're trying to do those without actually registering.
0: Well, uh, it sounds like the same old story via a different route. Um, It's kind of gluttons for punishment here. We're going to learn this lesson that you just cannot, cannot, cannot get around the law. Um, How about that? Uh, Already, uh, next story uh, comes from CoinDesk.com and Microsoft have launched a decentralized identity tool on the Bitcoin blockchain and Ethereum as well. The open source project called Ion deals with the underlying mechanics of how networks talk to each other. For example, if you log into Airbnb using, say, Facebook, a protocol deals with the software that sends personal information from your Facebook account to Airbnb. Microsoft have been working for a year on uh, key signing and validation software that relies on public networks like Bitcoin and like Ethereum. And they're going to shift out of Bitcoin's test net, which they have been doing um, historically, uh, into the Bitcoin main net, which I think interesting for a bunch of reasons. One, they did it on Bitcoin with a capital B and a low, lowercase b. They're moving around small amounts of Satoshis um, uh, on a permissionless blockchain for decentralized identity. Two... They started doing a thing. They've continued doing a thing. Uh, three, in, in the time that uh, all of this has happened, we've had the Cambridge Analytica scandal. We've had you know, people really start to care about privacy uh, in, in a completely different way. you know, set against the context of, Apple almost uh, pushing privacy as one of their competitive advantages. Um, I think Vitalik Buterin said a couple of days ago, having personal data has gone from being an asset to a, a liability. Like it's now become almost like uh, the toxic waste of of, of you know, kind of problems to deal with. You get all of this unbelievable revenue from it, but you've got this waste product of of trying to manage uh, on the back end. So. The timing for decentralized identity uh, could be great, but how do you feel about all this stuff, Colin? Is it still too pie in the sky? Is this um, implementation on this stuff is still really hard?
1: I am very happily ignorant on most things uh, identity that go beyond the the surface I know it's important but you know when people that are really into identity start talking about it my eyes glaze over um, I, I, I'm here for fancy ledgers and, and funny tokens um, like look uh, it's great you and I were chatting last night on slack when we were reading this article about it um, it's it's something that I've been watching, uh, what is it, Daniel Bushner over there has been doing this quite openly and publicly. And like, as you said, it was on the Bitcoin testnet. So um, Microsoft has pretty openly been trying to do this, and it was really funny when Daniel was talking about um, when all the news came out in 2017 about Microsoft uh, Azure partnering with ethereum everybody' saying Microsoft is back in ethereum and not Bitcoin he's like hey guys I'm, I'm still here um, mm-hmm. so it's it's great to see them actually come live with something and and you you pointed that out you know that's not something that happens a lot in cryptocurrency of actually coming it's, live it's with a something. rare old thing isn't it, it um, is. so so typically with identity what are we talking
0: about so identity is a legal term whereby a government has identified you they have issued a passport and gone you are in fact Colin G Platt the GSAS himself coming to you live from a field near somewhere in France I might not be um um, but, uh, yeah, you're, you're a man of many shadows. Um, but the the other thing, the other time you get identified is when you go to a bank and they check your government identities and they check utility bills and they, ha- they identify you. Um, and then they perform some due diligence and they'll look at credit scoring and a whole bunch of other stuff. But that act of identifying you uh, really is to uh, ensure a whole bunch of rules can then be followed. So, for instance... Is Colin secretly on the run um, from being involved in some PTK-based shenanigans um, that ended up with something really dodgy happening at the other part of the world? Quite probably. Um, So therefore, how do we know this? Well, we have to know who Colin is, and then we have to be able to get in touch with the banking system to be able to figure out what does Colin own? um, Does Colin have any conflicts of interest? Could he be being bribed? Can we follow the money? All this kind of stuff. Uh, But the way that works is typically uh, we rely on these big institutions uh, to identify you. And what happens with that is they end up building all of this personal data on you. Most of the big banks aren't actually able to use that. They probably collected it 10, 15 years ago, 20 years ago whenever you opened your checking or your bank account. So somewhere they've got a photocopy of your passport Now, apparently, that means they've identified you. Um, You have all these issues around data portability, and you've got all these challenges now post-Cambridge Analytica. But I guess that construct of identifying you and what it's there to solve completely breaks down in this digital world where I now have all of these tens, hundreds, thousands of services from different um, social networks, different suppliers. And it's all sort of coming out of Facebook but increasingly, those things are being hacked. Um, the consumer is not in control of that data. They can't revoke access to it. You know, all of the things GDPR was set up to do, it can't do. And a lot of people point at decentralized identity and go, oh, wait, so you mean you're going to get rid of uh, the idea of a bank identifying you and the idea of a government identifying you? Because we're just going to like identify each other or this this network's going to do it for us? And the answer is no. What we're saying is lots of people identify you rather than them just doing it individually and separately and never talking to each other. What if we had a platform in which your identity was yours and followed you around all the different services? It would probably make a lot of sense for nobody to own that platform. Because whoever owns that platform has a problem 100,000 times bigger than Facebook in terms of owning personal data, because now they've got everybody's personal data from every service. So the only person that should ever be able to access that and move that is you. Um, And so starting with credentials makes sense. This is Microsoft's beachhead and then move from there. But I've said a few times, uh, I really believe that identity is the Higgs boson of the global economy from digital's perspective. Like if you solve that, you solve a whole bunch of other stuff off the back of it. Um, And like if you think about everything from you go to another country and try and open a banking account, like, I don't know, you move from the UK to France or you move from the US to the UK. Don't know if anybody's done that um, near you lately, Colin. Don't know. And and you walk into a branch and they're like, who the hell are you? And you're like, yeah, I'm this guy. I've lived in the UK for the last five years. And they're like, cool, can you show me three years of address history? And you're like, no, I just moved here. Um, if you could have some system that would pivot your data out of different uh, organizations, that'd be really, really handy. Uh, and starting at the social networks and starting at the digital side of it, rather than starting at the banks, probably makes a lot of sense. I've ranted, I'll shut up.
1: Uh, what I think is is really funny in your example there is is having just experienced something very similar and applying for citizenship here. They like to have everything in their local language, so I would love to see how that translates across a blockchain.
0: Yeah, um, what we need is like a universal translator from Star Trek on a blockchain. Um, there you go. Uh, uh, I just
1: I think at the end of the day, we're going to end up with headaches where something gets printed off off of like a blockchain explorer and then translated at like a local office by some dude who's authorized to do it locally.
0: I think the key here is that never store data on a blockchain, store metadata on it, and um, even then make that metadata really sort of uh, audit-driven and event-driven rather than um, anything identifiable to an individual. Uh, Because that becomes your your pivot table to um, this key tried to access this bit of data in this IPFS data store at this time. Like, if you don't know what IPFS is, listeners, go Google that, because I think that's really cool. And if you take IPFS and you take Ethereum, you've got the building blocks for something really interesting. Notable projects aside from Ion from Microsoft include uh, the likes of Evernim, um, uh, Tradle.io. Um, I think there's a few other decentralized identity projects out there as well. So um, look them up. And if you're working in financial services, really do look them up because it looks like they're going to be ready this year. All time for a quick chill, Colin. Are you ready for the shilling? I'm ready. Alrighty, this episode is brought to you by R3. Uh, R3's Corda is an open source blockchain platform designed specifically for business. Uh, Corda is an open source project written in one of the fastest growing languages around, Kotlin, uh, which runs on the Java Virtual Machine. This means you can build blockchain apps, known as Corda apps, in any JVM language of your choice. And as we know, there's a lot of Java developers VBA. in it. Indeed, including VBA. <laughs>
1: get, get your that is blog- actually a JVM language. I looked it up. Oh,
0: wow. VBA is a, is a JVM language. Uh, you can make an Excel macro and work with R3's quarter. I mean, weirdly, we jest. We jest. Like at banks.
1: <laughs> that, that's 90% of what you do. <laughs>
0: Indeed. Um, so, if you're if you're listening on the trading floor, um, there you go. Uh, the latest version, Corda four, features eighteen hundred commits and multiple features that enable you to accelerate your vision of delivering rock solid DLT applications and go into production. What you estimate, uh, what you're going to need to enable long term stability and confidence. Visit corda.net um, and get involved in the community today. And uh, if you're a commercial dev, encourage your institution to try out Corda Enterprise for free at R three. Dot com. Was that some good chilling? That was excellent chilling. Always be chilling, Simon. Uh, ABS, um, ABS number go up. Number um, go up. All right. <laughs> which I, is I which is
1: linked with ABS, isn't it? Yeah, it is. Until it, it does. Is.
0: <laughs> uh, I'm all for that. All right. On with the show. Um, CNBC.com are reporting that Facebook have rolled back a ban on cryptocurrency ads as it ramps up its own blockchain efforts. Um, Facebook just keeps coming up. Uh, they started blocking ads promoting cryptocurrencies and initial coin offerings in January 2018. Um, but actually, some of the, the crazy ICO scams do seem to have quietened down. Given the recent bull market run, like the removal of this ban might actually be quite poorly timed or it might be really well-timed. It seems almost like they've really come up the knowledge curve and gone like, hang on
1: a minute, not all of this stuff is bad, even though a lot of it's really, really bad. I think I think you're missing the main point here. January 20, 2018 was just right like when Ethereum and everything, uh, XRP prices crashed and like all the rest of them, everything but Bitcoin, it crashed a little bit earlier. Um, also coincided with Facebook saying no more advertising. Bull Run's back, baby. And Facebook said, <laughs> so clearly <laughs> forget everything else. Facebook is the driver of prices right now. <laughs>
0: if we, hey, like, uh, you, you've got money to spend. You can come spend your money on Facebook ads. There you go.
1: Yeah, I, think, I think Facebook is the driver to say, like, when, when crypto is on and off. This is all it. Like, <laughs> I, this I is based like on absolutely nothing. <laughs> and don't use this as investment advice as yes, a
0: general rule, use nothing on this show as investment advice at all, ever. Um, but there's there's something interesting about where Facebook are at as an organisation, right? They they just cannot buy credibility when it comes to privacy and data security at the moment. There's uh, rumours that uh, WhatsApp has been hacked uh, with some. Uh, you know, they, they think it's a sophisticated actor um, installing things on devices that have uh, exploited a vulnerability in WhatsApp. Uh, there's, they're suing somebody because uh, they, they allegedly uh, they've got another potential Cambridge Analytica on their hands. And they're making a lot of statements about uh, privacy. Uh, but people, it's just not landing with credibility. But you compare that to Apple who can make statements about privacy who go, look, this device is really, really expensive, but also we're not selling your data. And so what was really interesting is somewhere in the middle of those two, you've kind of got Google who are getting away with it a little bit at the moment. Um the recent Google I.O. and just before it, um, the CEO of Google did an op-ed in the Wall Street Journal where he sort of said privacy isn't a luxury good. It should be something everybody has. And I was like, Ooh, nice pot shot. But actually, like this privacy thing of like these um these data barons, if data is the new oil, then we've definitely got data barons. They're being increasingly likely to be hacked. They're monetizing your data. Linking back to that story about decentralized identity, things like the basic attention token, things like the Brave browser, different ways of monetizing attention and different ways of doing uh, low-cost microtransactions seem like a really great business model when we've got all of these challenges. Um, it doesn't mean that ads are going to go away, but it certainly says there should be a new infrastructure. Now, whether or not that'll involve fancy magical coins and blockchains. I don't know if the jury's out, but it's um, it's certainly interesting enough for Facebook to have dedicated some real resource to it.
1: I'm just really happy that I'll soon be able to use Facebook coin to buy PTK ads and, and spam you on Facebook. Mm,
0: uh, well, uh, I fear for how much, much spam I'm going to get. I get a, I get a weak load of trolling from you, um, but uh, shout out to Chris Horn, who probably gets a lot more uh, trolling from you than, than I'll ever get. Uh, alrighty. um Coindesk.com, a loan shark situation, Um, got a sticky situation, Uh, MakerDAO uh, leaving borrowers with rising bills. So if you're not familiar, of course, this is uh, an Ethereum protocol for programmatic lending. MakerDAO emerged as a clear market leader for its uh, rock bottom interest rates of 0.5%. So you could lend money off them pretty, pretty cheaply. But the code behind MakerDAO requires interest rates to do more than extract uh, from borrowers. It's uh, technologically necessary for keeping stablecoin worth a dollar. And interest rates have recently rise to 19.5%. And the DAI is still worth below $1. Um, Some early borrowers are angry, feeling as though they were misled. Now, imagine if you walked into a bank and they said, "Um, all right, you want to borrow £100? Uh, That's going to be uh, 1%. Oh, but in three months, actually, it's going to be 20% you got to pay back. And it's like, well, hang on, is it 1% or is it 20%? Like, there's a real sort of like, I've been misled here thing. And this kind of comes back to the MakerDAO governance model, right? The... They have this—is it weekly call, Colin? Where yeah. they they sort of uh, have this open governance forum where they're trying to set what the interest rate should be, uh, and people are voting on what that should be. Um, but you know, MakerDAO has locked up more than two percent of all the ETH in circulation, so somebody's using it, somebody's making money off it. But maybe it's not the people borrowing.
1: Maybe um, you know, like what I what I love to say—I I was giving CoinDesk a hard time last week. We love CoinDesk, um, Brady Dale. Like people say. Um, that uh, crypto doesn't do very good investigative journalism. I thought this was an excellent piece from Brady Dale. Uh, Shout out to him. Hopefully we'll get him on the show here soon. Um, So one of the really interesting things about MakerDAO, which you brought up on that that interest rate charges, um, the way this thing works is essentially you lock up ETH, as you said, um, and let's say you have $1,000 worth of that, Maker allows you to pull out, let's call it $650-ish and fifty-ish in DAI, uh, the stable coin, uh, that you pay an interest rate on in a third token called Maker. Um, the idea is that you know when you repay your loan, you pay that accumulated interest. It doesn't charge on a daily basis. So what what they were finding was happening in this is People are kind of sitting on this unrealized loss going, OK, well, I thought it was going to be that half percent or one and, percent. And I went and I refinanced a, a mortgage or something that was at five percent. And I thought this was a great deal. Uh, it actually turns out it wasn't. And I don't have the money to pay it back or I need to go back and get another job to pay that back. Um, but it, it's still none of it has been realized. So um, potentially it's this massive deal where you either lose your ass your potentially, um, or you just never pay the stuff back. So I know a lot of people have been critical of it. Um, I've spent a lot of time looking at Maker. I think it is, A, the scariest possible thing inside of the decentralized finance movement, but also the most interesting. Um, So I'd love to see it work out for everybody. Um, It's too bad that some people got hit with this. And I do expect that at some point in the near future, uh, regulators are going to be focusing on these types of things for exactly this type of reason. Um, Two
0: things. Yeah. Define um, decentralized finance, or AKA hashtag DeFi. De yeah, yeah, you can't
1: define it without the hashtag. But
0: yeah, uh, hashtag DeFi. Define DeFi, um, and then secondly, why is it? Why is it interesting? Why is it scary?
1: Yeah. Um, so uh, so DeFi. Um, I, I don't know if there's a cogent uh, definition of it. Uh, no hashtag <laughs> definition. Um, so. the way I like to look at it is essentially like um, the idea of a lot of these blockchain and cryptocurrency things is, Hey, let's do everything and and be happily regulated and, and, and try to do that. This is kind of like the opposite of saying, let's create a financial, a parallel financial system that is open and anybody can use it. uh, And nobody can stop us. So like super, like down with a man type thing, forget, like forget any securities regulations or lending regulations or anything like that. Um, And, in order to do all of these things, they realized very quickly, I can't use the banking system like an exchange would do. Um, so I'm going to make my own money. Um, one of these things is to say, well, what do we have as money? Ether or Bitcoin or whatever else in these cases. I'm going to use that as a form of collateral to create new things like loans that mimic dollars or mimic other assets. Um, they have some things that track the stock market that falls under this bucket. Um, but it really kind of comes down to lending derivatives uh, in different ways, exchanges, uh, decentralized exchanges and betting markets. And what's really, I think, interesting about DeFi is because they're built in these open blockchains, they can start to build off of each other and they become kind of composable uh, instruments. Uh, I think that's really interesting. I think it's really scary because these more complex things that are more complex than just shifting money around, like a payment system, um, do have lots of risks in them. And and we're highlighting one of them, which is interest rates. Um, I think
0: there's something interesting about this decentralized finance and also being open finance. Like anybody with ETH and a little bit of technical knowledge could be on either end of the the buy or the sell of that trade. And actually, as you say, there's a whole bunch of risks that people don't understand. There are some people that do understand them. Um, and there's a lot of people finding their feet and sort of more or less gambling in it. Um, but the, if this were to get bigger, uh, those risks would need to be managed in some way. And, and what's interesting to me about the the DeFi movement is it's, as you would expect, it's very much how do we build the infrastructure, but it's, it's less... Um, and I know Rick Burton and others are playing with this, but a lot less of it is thinking about, you know, what are the risks to people? Like when you when you try and build product and when you try and build uh, infrastructure, you tend to think in terms of happy path. When you build financial services, you have to really, really think about unhappy path. Like what happened? You've got to think about error codes. You've got to think about like, you know, what happens if somebody loses all their money? What happens if this goes wrong? And that's just not something you have with, a, with consumer products in quite the same way, unless you've got a massive data breach, right? That- it's completely different. So um, there's a lot that can be learned from watching this, though. I think that the way they've constructed it, like if I were in a, in a bank and financial services, I'd want to be studying this, if not touching it. I'd want to be learning from it.
1: I spend a lot of time talking to uh, financial institutions about Maker um, just because of that exact reason. It will be very interesting. I think inevitably it will probably blow up, whether it will be a spectacular explosion or whether it's just going kind of be a slow implosion. I don't know. But I think eventually it'll um, it'll fall under its own weight if it doesn't massively shift. If you're
0: at a bank and you want to speak to uh, Colin G. Platt about that stuff, you can get him Colin at 11FS.com. Um, he, 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 like, Always, be shilling, <laughs> Always be <laughs> shilling, Simon. Always be shilling. And if you're not at a bank and you want to speak to Colin, <laughs> Colin at 11FS.com. Tell him, hey, life by the the field, maker. how is that? <laughs> Just giving out emails. Uh, alrighty. righty. Um, next story comes from Bloomberg.com. We could have picked hundreds of stories for this one, but um, Bitcoin. Like Gary ball, Fagan wanted this one. Yeah. Shout <laughs> out Gary Fagan. Um, Bitcoin bulls are revving up the Lamborghinis. Uh, over the past month, the price of Bitcoin has jumped. Uh, God, it's it hit $8,300 today. This is the 14th of May as we record this, uh, 2019, if you're really scrolling back through the episode list. Um, history has shown that New York Blockchain Week usually coincides with a rise in price. Um, but actually, uh, I think it coincides with sentiment. So uh, last year, actually, we saw um, there wasn't really a price bump. If anything, the price kind of went down a little bit, drifted sideways. Um, So, like, whatever whatever the prevailing sentiment is, Blockchain Week just seems to be a catalyst for that because everybody's lining up their press releases for it. Um, But, uh, you know, it's... It's definitely not all the way back to $20,000, but um, number go up. Are we mooning? Um, I think the first thing to say before we get into any of that analysis, Colin, is this is not investment advice. Do your own research. Consult a financial advisor and please never, ever spend money on crypto that you cannot afford
1: to lose. With that said, Colin, what's happening? (laughs) (laughs) People are spending money they can't afford to lose on cryptocurrency without consulting financial advisors.
0: <laughs> God
1: damn it well, what are they we doing tried to tell doing. you people
0: uh, no but really so uh, there's a couple of things that I've seen um that uh, that stand out the, the big one is uh you know this narrative around the institutions are coming the institutions are coming no really the institutions are coming and it's like yeah, no, they haven't. Um, but actually, you can make a credible argument now for why there's some institutions a bit closer. Um, Fidelity have launched a Fidelity Digital Assets division. Um, Fidelity Digital Assets has said in the next few weeks they're going to start offering some of the major crypto pairs out to retail. Um, there's the uh, there's definitely uh, news from BACT, B A K K T recently. They're looking to go to uh, sort of. Uh, user acceptance testing in July. So they're putting some firm dates behind it, although they still have to get all of the regulatory approvals from the CFTC. Um, and there's a couple of other things along those lines as well. Um, but I think we've seen you know, similar hype bubbles when CME offered their futures and the SIBO offered their, their options. Like we've seen institutions do a thing. It doesn't necessarily mean that there's, there's massive demand from the buyers, right? An institution selling doesn't mean you've got buy-side demand.
1: So um, I, I, I absolutely agree with all of those things. And, and Larry Cermak put out a really interesting thread, I believe it was yesterday, if not the day before, um, analyzing numbers of what's happening inside of the, the grayscale Bitcoin trust. Um, and apparently with the recent disclosures, they've been adding um, assets for several months now. So uh, Larry, who is not one to be overly bullish, uh, was quite positive. Um, on on how this could form, so maybe maybe as you say, institutions are actually coming. Um, it's gonna take a while. It's not something where they just flip a light light switch or you know log into Coinbase and say let's go drop a million bucks into this thing or a hundred million bucks or whatever it is. Um, so patience is is a key. So we may be running ahead of ourselves. I don't know. Maybe not. This is not uh, any prediction of price. Um, The other thing that I thought was uh, interesting is the technical aspect uh, for those that like to watch the markets. Um, There were a lot of shorts uh, around the Bitfinex uh, disclosures and the the lawsuits. Um, People betting the price of Bitcoin was going to go down. Um, When that happens and the price starts moving up, we get something called a short squeeze. Potentially in Bitcoin, that's what we saw. Um, So we saw uh, a lot of people had to cover those positions, meaning they were selling that expecting the price to go down, price didn't go down, price went up, they were losing money. They had to go buy Bitcoin in the open market uh, and that pushed the price up further. Considering the size of that um, position, that may have been what helped contribute to what is that doubling of the price over the last couple of months. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. So I think uh, as a technical thing, maybe there's other things that gave a catalyst and that just helped uh, hit, hit the big uh, slingshot on the way up.
0: Yeah, a few things converging all around um, Blockchain Week, all around loads of press releases, all around no limit of shilling from all of the usual Twitter regulars as soon as they see it. Um, so yeah, the, I think that the standard advice on this one really stands up. I think the interesting thing underneath all of this is actually over the last year, we've seen, I think... Blockchain, DLT, and crypto get way more interesting than it was during the bull run of sort of 1718. 18. Uh, it, it started to deliver stuff as we were talking with the Nordea story. We're starting to, uh, Microsoft's decentralized identity stuff and all the other players doing that kind of stuff. People getting into production, people building things. Um, and then this, this, Decentralized finance movement again seems to be there. There's a really interesting podcast the guys over at A16Z did as well, uh, kind of looking at how it's how it's moving on and, and making a lot of parallels to uh, things. Always get like. Uh, thrown rocks at sometimes rightly sometimes wrongly as a broad subject whilst they're early and then there's this like inflection point where it's kind of always been there Uh, and they were talking through it happened with cloud it happened with HTML and HTTP and it like pretty much every technology has been through this the difference with crypto is because you've got so many people following the price you've got so much more emotion kind of invested in it rather than just this corner of nerds and a few people in the press it's it's actually a much bigger thing and you get sentiment swinging wildly in either direction.
1: Democratization of bag-holding.
0: Wow, there's an episode title. Petra uh, <laughs> and I said that at exactly the same time. Stories we didn't have time to cover. Um, uh, fans can now bet on crypto crypto on Twitch's Fortnite streams. That's worrying. Um, Bloomberg.com HTC says their next smartphone will run a full Bitcoin node, which is surprisingly hard to say. Uh, and also, you can spedden... Bitcoin, GameStop, Barnes & Noble, and more from Coindesk. Nice touch. I think it was uh, Lee Cohen who came up with that one from Coindesk. Good good headline writing. Uh, it's time for Tweet of the Week.
1: Tweet, 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 tweet.
0: It's the Tweet of the Week. <laughs>
1: tweet of the Week.
0: Uh, tweet of the Week comes from Paolo Ardionio. Um, Arduino, I think. There you go. Thank you. Um, Bitfinex is able to raise a billion dollars worth of Tether, uh, one uh, in, in USDT, in about 10 days in a private sale. Private companies, giants in our industry uh, and outside made investments for more than $100 million each. A legion of inside and outside users made investments of a million dollars each. Why? Because they know they are trustworthy, uh, they recognise that we have been going uh, without needing <laughs> bragging about it publicly, and they want us to keep fighting for the industry as a whole. Their own words. Thank you, everybody, for the amazing support. We were impressed.
1: They they later disclosed in this in this thread that um, what was it? Half the money came from iPhoenix, which is the the holding like the joint holding of Bitfinex and um, Tether. So I mean that that's that's fun. Um,
0: so they gave themselves some tether from Tether.
1: Is this- <laughs> no 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 from the parent company of Tether gave okay. some Tether to Bitfinex, but which by the way they said Tether was only like what seventy four percent back. So of that one hundred billion USDT, technically that's only seven hundred and forty million dollars plus a loan from Bitfinex back to itself. Now I guess wow <laughs> um, I, I don't know
0: is tether the word tether losing all meaning to you
1: like it's, no it, it's it, oh, tether's fine to be honest like it's i i think ultimately i've been i've been talking to people about this like it, to me uh, and again not investment advice i don't really care what about any of these things um it, it, it's there's two groups of people there's people that like believe that actually we saw um a billion dollars plus in 2017 move into crypto via uh, Bitfinex and Tether and people that don't believe that and people that don't believe it still don't believe that any of that money backs it or that people would actually put that much money into crypto and still think it's a bunch of geeks. Uh, you know, they obviously did something that uh, a lot of people raise eyebrows about very rightfully um, in how they disclosed that they were changing what was backing it, including a Bitfinex loan to Tether, um, a closely held loan. We talked about this already last week. Um, so you can like it or not. Um, I, I just think it's kind of funny when you read these things. It is. <laughs> Alrighty,
0: well, that was Tweet of the Week. And now, before we leave you, I caught up with uh, Muneeb Ali, who's the CEO of Blockstack, who's uh, fresh off announcing a $50 million raise through their Reggae Plus offering. So, uh, you know, Muneeb's been pretty active on Twitter lately. Um, Blockstack have been around for a little while. So, let's find out who's Blockstack and uh, what was the Reggae Plus offering all about. So I'm here with uh, Muneeb Ali, who's the co-founder of Blockstack and the CEO of Blockstack PPC. Was that? Yeah. I'm glad I got it right. Uh, All righty. Muneeb, thank you very much for being on Blockchain Insider with us. Uh, Remind our listeners uh, who who are Blockstack and and what's the Blockstack project all about?
2: Absolutely. Really, really uh, excited to be here. So Blockstack is a decentralized computing platform. Uh, so in many ways, there are other uh, projects out there like Ethereum and EOS, but Blockstack has taken an ex- extremely different approach to building a decentralized computing platform. We explicitly do very little at the blockchain there. And we look at this as almost like a full stack uh, for decentralized computing uh, that is in a way giving people alternatives to cloud computing. So the project has been uh, around for a while. It was an R&D phase. Started at the computer science department at Princeton University where I did uh, my PhD. And we were in R&D phase for almost like four years. Uh, and and uh, recently in Q4 uh, launched our Stacks blockchain, which was kind of like the uh, the last missing piece of our full stack uh, platform. So there are now more than 80 different applications uh, built by independent teams on top of the platform just just over the last six months. And, uh, and we did a public filing with the SEC for releasing our token to the the broader audience.
0: Uh, Yeah, and I'm going to get into that in a moment, but can you give an example of some of the things that people have built on top of Blockstack and and why they chose you versus some of the other um, sort of uh, platforms that are out there?
2: Yeah, so we actually have a very explicit uh, ranking mechanism. So every month, uh, a ranking of new apps comes out as part of our incentive mechanisms for developers for, for building high-quality applications uh, on BoxStack. The app that has been consistently winning for the last four months is called Graphite. Uh, so it's a alternative to Google Docs. And if people try it out, they would actually see that the performance of the, the app, like it's, it's like a Google Docs alternative, is very similar to Google Docs. It's as if you're using cloud computing. Uh, and and uh, that's, that's the, the main reason why people are building on Blockstack. You can get the reliability and performance of cloud computing in a fully decentralized way. Uh, other examples of applications include things like alternatives to Medium, uh, Patreon, WhatsApp, one password, DocuSign, and every uh, other day, almost like you know, someone publishes a new application. And the reason is that all the work we did in the last four or five years, uh, we have kind of like reduced the complexity of building these applications to very simple to use uh, developer libraries. So for a developer, it's like instead of using a library to use Facebook Connect, they would just use like our decentralized. Auth. Or instead of putting data uh, with Amazon or, or Firebase, they would use our library for our decentralized storage system and, and, and use that instead.
0: And post Cambridge Analytica, I guess there's some good reasons why people want to use something decentralized rather than centralized. But how does, a, how does your platform allow something to be different to what would have been traditionally centralized um, in that sense? Why are you guys different? Are you not just remaking the problem with a different tech stack?
2: Yeah, absolutely. So I think uh, there are two fundamental ways. One is that, so it's very user-focused, so users are in control by default, and users get their own private data lockers, right? So these imagine like encrypted private data lockers that are owned explicitly by users, and they, they can be hosted on top of existing cloud providers. So you kind of like get the same uh, performance that you would, but that's just your data. Nobody else has any visibility into it. And the second thing is that every user gets a universal uh, username or profile for the uh, that works like everywhere. So you just have to register your username and profile once, and then you would connect your private data locker. After that, using applications is as easy as you know just a, a single click. There are no user, usernames, no passwords. Uh, you're not leaving data traces with applications. You're downloading apps. Uh, the apps write data in your private data locker. And when you're done with the app, you just delete it. So imagine if Facebook was built this way. Uh, so, all of the kind of like hundreds of millions or billions of users that Facebook has, instead of all of the users giving their data to Facebook and Facebook having so much control over uh, you know, what people can see or how they analyze that data to show to target ads and, and so on. Um, Everyone has their own kind of like private data uh, blocker, and collectively, uh, you know, you are part of a decentralized social network where you can, you can still have a similar functionality. You can still have feeds. You can still send private messages to uh, your friends, but there's just no like single big monopoly uh, in, in the middle.
0: It's a really interesting architect around the individual and post-GDPR and now some of the other regulations that are coming out around privacy. We saw a lot of tick box processes where websites were getting you to opt in to everything that you already had, whereas this is actually a lot of the conversations Sir Tim Berners lee has been having and others looking at really changing how the Internet works uh, at its very core foundational level. I, I think that's interesting. So, Pivoting from that, then tell me about the um, the Reggae Plus uh, raise that you guys are looking to do for a token sale. You know, like uh, give me the backstory. Uh, why are you raising, and and what are, what are the mechanics of this uh, this token sale?
2: Yeah, so uh, I think in 2017, when we kind of like set off to uh, to start building our stacks blockchain, uh, we did a. Offering to accredited investors, In our core community of developers and and uh, kind of like enthusiasts of the open source community, they're clearly like most of them are not accredited investors, and they couldn't participate at that time. And we at that time we tried, uh, but we 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 couldn't come up with a legal framework that we felt comfortable with. Like our uh, it's for for us, like it's not just like engineering excellence that is important to us. But it's also we we focus a lot on compliance and, and regulations as well. We actually believe that in order for this technology to reach mass market, uh, you can't be outlawed. You need to work within the appropriate regulations and open up the uh, the market markets in a fully regulated way. So at that time, we we effectively give out these vouchers to our core community. There were around nine thousand of them. Uh, that when we figure out a legal framework where people who are just you know not accredited investors can't purchase these tokens uh, we will give you the same price that the accredited investors got uh, back in 2017 so we did uh, like we raised around like 47.5 million in that offering back in 2017 and just an interesting uh, detail there that again you know uh, while 2017 was a crazy year for people to just like raise money on questionable technology or just like a white paper. What we did was, uh, uh, the funds raised remained in, uh, we were setting up these Delaware funds. Only 20% of the money was coming out for R and D explicitly. And if we didn't deliver on our technology, if we didn't build out this blockchain and push it out live, uh, by January of, of 2019, which has passed, like that was three months ago. Uh, up to 80% of the money would go back to the investors, right? And that was completely uh, kind of like uh, our own way of self-imposing these investor protections because the markets were going so crazy, right?
0: And Interesting that you were doing that at the time, and now we find ourselves in this it, almost the opposite market. But it's kind of stood the test of time a little it, bit. Exactly. So, so now you're going Reggae Plus. Tell me about Reggae Plus. What what is that? Yeah.
2: So, uh, so that was let's say approximately a fifty million offering to accredited investors, and we earmarked like a roughly fifty million offering at that time for the general public including these voucher holders who couldn't participate back then. Uh, So we were looking at various kind of like legal uh, paths available to us and very broadly, uh, I'm pretty sure every project was was tried like doing a token offering uh, has done their own analysis. In our analysis, the options were either we go to the regulators and try to work out a path forward while working uh, with regulators and the existing regulations. B is we... Try to introduce some new law. So, so certain projects are trying to like go to Congress and introduce a new law. Uh, option B, like for me, is not very realistic, at least on a short on a short time timeframe. Uh, maybe years from now, the laws can change, but I don't don't see them changing anytime soon. And then the next option is you kind of like block the U.S. and you just leave or. or Move out of the country, and not only that—you know—I live here, and our company is based out of New York. uh, But also the fact that we believe that U.S. is a very important market, Uh, not not just the not just opening up to the U.S. public market, but also uh, Silicon Valley is here, right? Like all these tech companies, if they think that building on your platform can be a liability for them, they're not going to build on your platform, right? So you can't close off the U.S. market and expect to be a kind of a global uh, platform. So, so do you yeah. do you
0: expect that developers at uh, either big techs or the big techs of tomorrow the scale-ups of today uh, will want to adopt your technology or is the advertising business model too entrenched for them to ever do that
2: yeah I think I think it's in a way um, uh, I view this as almost like a complete shift in the market like if you if you go back uh, like before the internet advertising model the model was really around uh, software licenses Right, so Microsoft had a large monopoly around Windows and, and other software that was there and in a way uh, when, when cloud computing happened and the internet happened uh, the market just shifted right like there now you could offer your services for free Google has never charged you for a software license but they monetize all the user data that is with, with the user. So in a way that this shift is as big as that where suddenly what if you can no longer monetize user data Right, and then, uh, then I think similarly, like how Microsoft kind of like struggled to um, um, to change itself to the new age. Microsoft has never been able to su- just be able to successfully compete with Google or Facebook in terms of having access to user data. Right? Like they have survived over the years, done well for themselves, but they were never really able to kind of like uh, compete head on with Google and Facebook for the new world. And I think something similar might happen. It's not like the Facebook and Google is just going to disappear. I think they will stick with their business models that work for them. They might try to adapt a little bit, especially if Facebook is getting a lot of heat. They're trying to focus more on privacy and stuff. But you just see like completely new businesses evolve, completely new companies evolve that are just fundamentally different uh, from this entire model of, of monetizing having user data.
0: Explicitly. Exciting stuff. So what does the future look like for Blockstack? Um, what have you got coming up? Uh, what's, the, what's the timeline look like on the raise and, and what comes next?
2: Yeah, so we, uh, we made a bunch of progress privately uh, with, the, with the SEC. We uh, received two rounds of comments and then felt confident enough that now we'll go ahead and file publicly. Uh, we're still waiting for our qualification. Uh, and I think we are really excited about potentially opening up our network to a broader user base and, and as I said, opening up the, the public markets, including the U.S., uh, uh, for this. And then uh, the thing that I'm most excited about is actually the all the innovation that is happening on top of the platform with all the developers. Like I think roughly in Q4 and Q1, and we're seeing the same trend continue into Q2 as well, apps built on our platform have been doubling quarter over quarter. Right? So that, that is... Uh, I, think, I think that's just like a... Uh, it just feels like different... Moving pieces of the underlying platform just came together, and now it's simple enough for developers. Where it might be like easier, cheaper, faster to build on top of Blockstack than to actually go the traditional route of like, hey, I'm going to start a server on top of like Amazon uh, AWS and have a database. Uh, so it's like that's I think that's the blue ocean. Like in many ways, like we operate in the crypto industry, but our growth is actually coming from outside of the crypto industry.
0: Exciting times. All right, so if people want to learn more about Blockstack and what you guys do, how do they get a hold of you? How do they get uh, to find out more about Blockstack?
2: So for Blockstack, uh, our website is blockstack.org and uh, it's the same handle on Twitter. And for me personally, uh, I'm pretty active on Twitter and I have my first name, so it's at
0: Muneeb. That's a pretty great Twitter handle, Muneeb. Thank you very much for being on Blockchain Insider. Awesome.
2: Thanks so much for having me.
0: Thanks, Maneeb, for your reggae offering. That was um, very saucy. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Couldn't help the pun. Sorry, Maneeb. Already, uh, This podcast, of course, is brought to you by 11FS, and we're the challenger consultancy working to shape the next generation of financial services. Uh, We'll be at Money 2020. So if anybody of you are in Europe at Money 2020, do come say hi. Look for the 11FS stand, which I believe will be across from the Ripple stand. So very exciting times. Um, (laughs) Will you be giving away XRP? Uh, something not like that indeed I, um, I won't be there <laughs> uh, 11FS works with big banks big techs and all kinds of companies who want to get the most out of where their finance meets customers uh, don't forget to subscribe and leave us a review and uh, Colin where can people find
1: out more about you on, on the Twitter at Colin G. Platt just as last week
0: always at Colin G. Platt uh, and you can find me at sy Taylor on Twitter or email me simon11fs.com if anything resonates with you um Big, big thank you to our production team here at 11FS, producer Petra, Hannah, and of course, Alex, our editor. Thank you for listening. We'll have more Blockchain Insider next week. Goodbye.